your Bibles and turn to Matthew chapter 5. While you're turning there, I'll tell you this is one of those stories I heard a while back. It's probably a teacher, I mean a preacher story, which means there's probably very little truth to it, but it makes a great point. So I won't tell it as if it's a true story, but I sure love the point that it makes. A wife and a husband were driving down the road. They were known for their explosive encounters with one another. No, this is not another sermon on divorce. You're safe. Uh, But they were known for their explosive encounters with one another. And so as they were driving down the street, it was, you know, kind of, or down the highway, it was kind of one of those moments where uh, the tension was pretty thick. And uh, all of a sudden, the wife hears the husband say, oh, man, I was doing 80. And she looked at him and she said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well... The policeman behind me is probably not going to like the fact that I was doing 80 and uh, it's a 55 mile an hour speed zone. And so uh, sure enough, he pulled them over. And as they got pulled over, the uh, policeman walked up to the window and he asked the guy, said, uh, could I see your license and registration? And he said, do you know why I pulled you over? And the guy said, no, sir, I have no idea. And his wife looked at him and said, that's not true. You just told me that you were doing 80 miles an hour when he pulled you over. And he shot her a look. And the policeman kind of laughed a little bit and uh, he said, uh, sir, I'm going to have to give you a ticket because you were exceeding the speed limit significantly. And he said, I, I just didn't realize it, officer. I, I, thought, I just thought I was going speed limit. To which his wife again replied, that's just a lie because you told me that you knew you were going over the speed limit. He shot her another look. Well, the policeman was starting to enjoy this a little bit and he said, sir, also I'm going to have to ticket you because you didn't have your seatbelt on when I pulled you over. And uh, the, the guy said, officer, I had it on, but I took it off to get my wallet as you were walking up. And his wife replied, that is not true. You never wear your seatbelt. Now he's not shooting her looks. He's glaring at her. And the policeman sees this and uh, he says, you know, this guy's trying to string me along. He said, I think I'll just get him. He said, I'm going to inspect your car real quick. I'll be right back. So he starts walking around and he comes back and he says, sir, I'm going to have to ticket you also for that broken taillight that you have. And the guy said, I didn't realize I had a broken taillight. His wife said, Harry, that's not true. For three months, you've been telling me you knew you needed to get that fixed. At this point, the guy turns to his wife and he said, you just shut your mouth. Well, the policeman didn't like that. And he looked over at the lady and he said, ma'am, does he talk to you like that all the time? And she said, officer, only when he's been drinking. (laughs) Let's talk about integrity today. What do you say? Matthew chapter 5, we find Jesus now taking us another step with his sermon on the mount. And here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 33 He says, again, you heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than that comes from evil. 
Well, it's an interesting take that Jesus gives us here. On that first century deciphering of the Old Testament commands to the people of Israel relative to how they verified their intent. Jesus starts off with a formula now that we're familiar with. You have heard that it was said. Let me just remind you as we come into this that Jesus is taking this from the this is the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus is taking the established religion of his day, and he is saying to those who are gathered on that hillside by the Sea of Galilee that if they're to be what God wants them to be, let me shift that around a little bit and say it this way: if they're to be the kind of people who follow Christ, then they're going to have to have a rethinking of the implications of what they've always been taught. It's not that he's doing away with what they've always been taught, but he's taking head on the traditions of the religious teachers of his time. To do that, he goes back to the Old Testament, he pulls truth from that, and then he, part of what we have to do in this day is is to figure out what they were teaching relative to all of that, because he said, you've heard that it was said before, and tied up into that is not just the Old Testament quote that he tends to give us, but all of the teachings that surround that. The religious atmosphere in first century Judea, or what we would call the Jews of that time, that that religious atmosphere was chock full of legalism. And what God said in 10 basic commandments, they had expanded to 613 plus all kinds of teachings relative to those 613. And so with that in mind, we come now and let's talk a little bit about what he actually says to them. The first century landscape from this Old Testament text... um, is a little hard for us to grasp. And what I want to do this morning is I want to boil it down and bring it down to just kind of some general statements. Uh, We could spend a long time getting through all the intricacies of it, but I really don't want to do that. Essentially, there are two places, uh, two teachings I want to take you to in the Old Testament. So keep your place there in Matthew 5, but go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5 and 6. I like listening to see if pages are turning or not. I don't do this to you very often and move you to another place, but let's look at these very quickly together. Deuteronomy chapter 5 and Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now in chapter 5, we have the Deuteronomy version of the Ten Commandments. They're also in Exodus, I believe it's chapter 20. But in Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 11, here's what it says. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now, for us in 21st century America, we hear that and we immediately jump to don't use cuss words with God's name in them. Now, I could fill in the blanks on what those cuss words are, but most of you already you're already there ahead of me, aren't you? Now, that's the way we take it. And it's not to say that the Jews of the Old Testament or even the Jews of the New Testament would have taken it a different way uh, because they would have agreed with that. You don't use God's name in a cursing kind of way, but they had a much broader definition of what that meant. And part of what Jesus is attacking now is how you nail down what it means. So in their perspective, this is saying don't take God's name and use it in an empty kind of way, particularly as it relates to swearing. That's like I swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. 
How does that end for us? So help me God. All right? That's the 21st century version of an American society that has no use for God. And yet we tack that so help me God onto our swearing in court as a way of saying, I promise you this time I really will tell the truth. As opposed to what? You see, that's the nature of the argument here. The Jews of the first century were essentially saying, um, if you use God's name, you have to tell the truth. If you don't use God's name, well, then all bets are off. Look at chapter 6 of Deuteronomy. This is going to be Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 13. A little different twist on what we just read from chapter 5. 6.13 says, It is the Lord your God that you shall fear. Him shall you serve, and by his name you shall swear. You see the two verses and how they kind of offset one another? One of them says, don't use God's name in vain. The other one says, if you use God's name in a swearing kind of way to, to affirm the reality of what you're saying, then that validates it. In other words, if you go to the trouble to bring God in on your promise, you better keep your promise. Okay? So far, so good? Everybody with me? All right. But here's the first century landscape of that. The scribes, the Pharisees, the rabbis, the religious authorities of the first century were locked up in this continuing debate about just what it means to invoke God's name into a promise or an oath. And they began to make it, as religion tends to do, a very elaborate kind of thing where, yeah, this is yes, but that is no. Let me, again, try to just boil it down because it gets more intricate than any of us want to have to sit through. Essentially, it's this. You could swear, according to them, by the altar which was in the temple. And if you did that, then you were bound by your vow. But if you swore by the gold that was on the altar, then you weren't bound to your promise. Now, you want to know how they get to that? Who knows? It's some guy who probably had a little higher degree than another guy. And he said, well, this is obviously, this is clearly the, the uh, distinction line in all of this. My point in all of that is to say this. What the Pharisees were doing, the scribes and Pharisees of the first century, were taking this debate, what can we get away with? And what they were essentially doing, according to what Jesus is teaching us here, is that they were saying there are some vows you can make and not have to keep, some you make and you have to keep. Now let me just, let's stop and step back from that debate for just a minute and look at the implications of the distinction they're trying to make. Why would anyone want to make a vow that they knew was not binding. The answer to that is, they never intend to keep it in the first place. So what we had now was an elaborate system, and it was endorsed through the religious community, of when it was acceptable 
to say something and not follow through. Now, that shows me there's a predisposition and intent to do harm to other people. Now, in case you're not quite there with me yet, step back again and think of the implications of what's going. You're in a legal... Well, let me just put it to you this way. Let's say that in the uh, next... Let's see, we're almost into March. So let's say in the next six, eight weeks, you have the opportunity to take a government form... that has been endorsed by the Internal Revenue Service and you have the opportunity to take that form and at the bottom of it, after you filled in all of the numbers, at the bottom of it, you're going to sign, and if I remember what it says correctly, under penalty of perjury. You know what that is? That's a go-to-jail kind of word. That you're going to affirm that what you have put on that document as it relates to your income is true and valid. In their context, if you signed that and you said, under penalty of perjury, I swear by the gold on the altar that I'm telling you the truth, you are off the hook with them. Now, let me just, just friends here, okay? Don't try that with the IRS, okay? They're not going to buy that. The fact of the matter is that what those Jews and the religious atmosphere of that first century had done was taken what God said in the Old Testament, which was a way to affirm reality. This is binding on me. And they had so taken that in the interest of self in the New Testament times that they had twisted it around so that you could find ways to lie to other people without being held responsible for it. So it took a, an advanced theologian to decipher what other people were telling you when it came to contracts and oaths and vows and that kind of thing. That's the, you have heard that it was said, part of what Jesus gives. So let's look at what he says with the, but I say to you. Let me give you the summary of this first. Oh, by the way, I didn't give you the summary of the first one, did I? From the Old Testament part, what Jesus gives us, here's the basic teaching. With God, integrity is important. Let's let that sink in. With God, integrity is important. I'll come back to that in a few moments. Let's go ahead and pick up what Jesus says. The summary of the his part of it, which is, but I say to you, here's the summary of that. Live in such a way that you don't have to give an oath. Okay? Now, what that means is don't avoid oaths. You know, living in this secret kind of way and dodging any kind of thing that somebody's going to make you hold hold true to your word. That's not what Jesus is saying. What he is saying to you is live your life in such a way that is marked by such integrity that you should never have to say, I'm going to swear by something else that this is true. When you say yes, everybody around you ought to know it means yes. That's what Jesus is saying. Integrity is important with God. And the second part of that is, because of that, you show that people are important to you. It's not about trying to get out of a contract. It's about fulfilling the contract with him. So let's come back a little bit. Let's see what he says. Why does he say that 
it's important that our yes be yes and our no be no. Look again at these passages. But as we do that, I want to take you back and bring you totally up to speed on the Sermon on the Mount as we've been looking at it. Actually, I started this study. I don't know how many weeks ago now. It's been quite a while. But I started by looking in Mark's Gospel, chapter 12. You don't have time to turn there right now. But it's the place where Jesus is approached and he's asked, what is the greatest commandment of all? And how does he respond to that? Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all your mind, with all of your strength. In other words, your whole being. Okay? Let's pull it down. Love God. All right? But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes to the second one. And the second is this. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we've said that pulls down to love people. Now, I see that a lot on church marquees these days. I'm glad for that. I hope that churches all across the world are burying in on what Jesus said. These are the two basic, most important commandments of all. Put God first in your life and people matter. So that's where we started with this. And then we went to the Beatitudes, which is the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And what I said to you then, I continue to say, the Beatitudes, there's eight of them, they fall neatly into two groups of four. The first four deal with love God. The second four deal with love people. That shouldn't surprise us. Jesus himself said those are the two most important. If he's going to teach one sermon that we have recorded, you would expect to find it if those are the most important commandments. So the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount, takes love God, love people, holds it up for us, tells us a little bit about what that looks like and what that means, and then the rest of the sermon begins to elaborate there. He goes from the the, uh, Beatitudes to verses 13 and thereabouts, where he tells us what our role in society is. You remember what he says? You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of of the world. And what he says to his followers on that hillside, stretching down to us today, is you need to make a difference in this world. He turns immediately after that and he highlights the scribes and the Pharisees and their religion and he says, they're not making the difference that they need to. But you, now this is verse 20, you must have a surpassing righteousness. One that is, as we've begun to see now, an inside-out kind of heart transplant kind of influence. What Jesus has done systematically is he's shown us that life with God, life with Christ, is to be lived from the inside out. It requires a heart transplant at the very beginning. And each step of the way, he teaches us to be transformed on the inside. And as he transforms us on the inside, as we draw closer to him and we become more like him, that begins to ooze out in the way we live. And the way we live impacts those people around us. And now he's given us, this is the fourth of the six examples that he says, here are some examples of what this inside-out religion looks like. You've heard that it was said, don't murder. But I say to you, don't be angry. Now, we could take those as more commandments, but that's not really what he's driving at. It is a change on the inside that makes the difference on the outside. Let me just stop again. One of the reasons I chose this as my first extended series to preach through at Crestwood is because I believe that what Jesus does here is so revolutionary in the 21st century church. Because we have, in our immense wisdom, 
of 2,000 years since he was here, we found a way to take his teachings and move it right back to religiosity. The 21st century American church is irrelevant in the landscape of American life. And that's not how it's supposed to be. It's a good time for us to come back to a heart-based religion. Not one that is just so individually focused and so personally beneficial that we don't care what happens around us. Jesus from day one, step one in this process says people matter and how you treat people matter. And that brings us right back now to the oaths part of this sermon. If the intention of the religious crowd of the first century was to take those commands from the Ten Commandments and say, okay, how can we manipulate those so that we can manipulate people? Jesus says, I'm telling you, you got to do it better than that. The Jesus way will not allow us to abuse people for our purposes. And so what he says then is that personal integrity, one of the six examples, is one of the things that leaves a mark on society. You find that to be true in your life? Look at the landscape of your life. How do you feel about people that you know are trying to get into your wallet? How do you feel about people if you're a business owner How do you feel about people who you know are trying to abuse you or your business in the system? Let me turn it around a little bit. This is a little harder for us to swallow maybe. But this salt and light concept needs to, we need to make sure it comes home for us. I believe that Christian people ought to be the best bill payers on the planet. You know what I mean by that? By the way, all your creditors are liking this sermon now. A Christian who signs an application or a contract, whether it's a loan at the bank or a note on a car, when you as a Christian sign your note to that, you are saying, my word is that I will repay this on time in full. You know that I've talked to several people in the industry and some of the greatest credit risks in American society today are ministers. Now, what does that say? Because I don't want to be up here by myself in this. I'm going to throw it open and just say all Christians ought to be the best bill payers on the planet. If you went to your banker based on your record and said, look, I got this IRS payment coming up, $43,000 I owe them this year. By the way, if you owe forty-three, I hope you've been tithing all, all year long. No, I'm just kidding about that. I got this $43,000 IRS payment due and I only have $4 in the bank. So I'd like to take out a loan unsecured loan just my word and yours i'll just you just take my word for it i'll pay it back how would your banker treat you i hope after he finished laughing if he didn't have an aneurysm in the process i hope that he would look at you and say you know what i know you well enough to know you're good for it 
But regulations stipulate that I have to make you sign something. Christians ought to be the best bill payers on the planet. You know why that is? Because Jesus says integrity is important. Because you, as a follower of Jesus Christ, are supposed to be salt and light to those people who don't know Jesus Christ. And so somebody who doesn't pay their bills then becomes one that the world looks at and says, I thought you were supposed to be different. Yeah, I know, it gets awfully quiet in here. How do you feel about integrity? I like the story that I was told a while back. Told as a true story, actually. This nurse was her first day in, in the surgical part. She had been reassigned and she was working in and it was her first day to be kind of the, the lead person there. And so as surgery was finishing up, the surgeon said, okay, let's close up this patient. And the nurse says, wait a minute, doctor. Uh, we only have 11 sponges here and I know that we used 12 in this procedure. And the surgeon said, no, we just, we just used 11 and let's close them up. And the nurse said, no, sir, I'm sorry. I don't want to, you know, be a problem, but I'm telling you, we use 12. I only have 11 here. We have one missing. And the surgeon looked at her in one of those kind of, you know, charged kind of situations. And he said, are you telling me that you're challenging my word here? And I'm telling you that we only used 11. You're saying we used 12 and I'm saying close them up and you're saying no. She said, yes, sir, I'm telling you that. She, he said, do you understand the implications on your job if I report this? And she said, yes, sir, I do. I'm convinced this is the case. At which point he moved his foot where he had dropped the sponge and was covering it up with his foot. And he said to her, you'll do just fine. I want you on my team from now on. This world puts a premium on integrity. And when Christians live without it, it does harm to the cause of Christ. And Jesus says, it matters because people matter. One last point of application before I'm closed. I'm guessing that 100% of us in here would never think of cheating on our income taxes. So that illustration and application is washed. Probably most of us pay our bills. And so that illustration and application may be not that big a deal. We have a church full of parents with young children. Or older children for that matter. So let me talk to y'all for just a second. When you raise your children in what we call scripturally the fear and admonition of the Lord... That's a whole sermon, by the way, to discuss what that means. But when we say to our kids, Jesus loves you. And we believe you need a relationship with Jesus Christ. By the way, you need to be telling your kids those things. And when you train your children, it's time for us to go to church. It's time for us to be involved in this. And we train our kids what it means to be Christian and to walk with them. And we hold that up for them even when they make a misstep and we throw the Bible up and say, Jesus says we shouldn't do that. That's all well and good as long as we keep it where it needs to be in a healthy kind of context. But let me tell you something, parents. You can totally undo all of that religious education when you say to your kid, listen, when I get home today, we'll go out and play ball. And when you come home, you don't have time for him. 
So you don't do it. If you don't follow through with your words, with your kids, you're doing damage to the kingdom of God in your own family. I was fortunate because I had a wife who helped remind me and we had agreement between us that I didn't just jump down her throat when she reminded me. But when I would say something to the kids and then forget about it, she would say to me, hey, man, you remember you told Brandon that you would go do something with him. Now, I didn't ever tell Lauren I'd do anything with her. I didn't want to be around her. But, um, oh, oh, hey, Lauren, I know you're sitting over there. It is critical, parents, if you say to your kids, we'll do such and such, you by jolly better do such and such. Because failure to do that teaches them that your yes doesn't mean yes. And that they don't matter. Integrity matters. The religious system of the day, Jesus takes it on. That's why we see in these verses where he says... uh, let me look at mine here. I lost up there. He says, in a, in a lowering kind of statement each time, I say to you, don't take an oath at all either by heaven, and then the next one is by the earth, and then the next one is by Jerusalem, and then the next one down is even by your own head. What he's saying with that is, every step of those, God is intimately involved In every aspect. So when it comes to oath taking. In the first century. And their elaborate system of how they're going to get out of it. What he said was. You just can't get out of it. Because God's involved in every aspect of your life. And he hears your promise. So how is it with you. This morning. Is your life marked by integrity? Is your yes, yes, and your no, no? If I were to sit down with your teenage children this morning and say, tell me about the integrity of your parents, what do you suppose they would tell me? But you know, really, ultimately, it doesn't matter what they would tell me. What matters is, how does God view our lives today? Let me make sure that we get this on the corporate level as well. As a church, if we say God has strategically placed us in this community to show his love to the communities of this area, if we say that, by the way, I do say that. I believe God has strategically placed us here, extremely well-resourced for the job, strategically placed us here to show his love to this community. If we say that and then don't get outside the walls of this church to show that, we have no integrity as a church. How do the people of this community view us? On a hillside 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus sat there with these gathered followers, a ragtag group, and he said, we're going to This is my words. We're going to turn this world upside down with a heart-based religion. It's really not religion at all when you get right down to it. 
It's about life with God and seeing things the way he sees it and trusting him to use us to do that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, the very first step in the revolution is to let him change your life. Now you can hear it, we can say it all different kind of ways. I could throw the sin thing on you and say, you know what? You're a dirty, rotten sinner. The Bible says that's true. Don't, don't get too offended at that. I am too. <laughs> We're all that way. It's what the Bible says. The fact of the matter is that part of us needs to change, but only Jesus Christ can change that. I can come at a different angle and say no matter how terrible your life is, Jesus has a plan for you. He'll turn your life around, give you reason for living, and that's true too. The fact of the matter is Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, died on a cross because he loves you so much that he wants to make your life worth living at the greatest levels. So if you don't know that, that's the first step, that you trust him to be your savior. But the rest of us, many of the rest of us, long since made a decision to become Christian, to trust Christ and to give our lives to him. But we fall into, almost immediately, we fall into a religious system where we just kind of do our own thing, but we carry the title Christian with us. I think Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, especially in this message today, is saying to us, you have to be different. You have to reflect who God himself is. This world will make a, will take notice when that happens. One of the great stories of exploration is Shackleton's expedition. One of the poles, and they were in a life-threatening situation. To cut it all short, he said he went to sleep one night. They, they had limited it down where they would boil snow down to water, and they had some hard tack that they had brought with them, just that hard biscuit kind of stuff. And there was very limited amounts of that. And so they were doing all they could to survive. And they knew that they were going to run out of provisions before they got to where they needed to get or before help could get to them. And so Shackleton began to ration out the stuff. And he gave each man a certain amount of that hard tack. And at night they would boil water and they would put it in there and where they could at least chew it up. And he said he noticed one night, after everybody else had gone to sleep, he was awakened and he looked across and one of his most trusted men had woken up and was sitting up and he was eyeing the guy's pack who was next to him. And he thought to himself, surely my friend's not going to go over there and steal his buddy's provisions. He said he watched him out of one corner of his eyes, his buddy got up out of his sack, went over to where his buddy was, and he opened up that pack where he was keeping his stuff. And instead of taking his buddies out, he took his provision for the day and stuck it into his buddy's pack. That's a picture of Christian integrity. When we've been given the truth of God that brings life, we treat it with great care. And we pass it on to those people around us who are dying without it. The integrity part of this, the follow-through of what we say we believe, so we don't ruin our witness 
with empty promise. Let's pray. Father, it's not an easy message for us because we're all human. And as much as we would like to hang on to that and say that's our excuse, the fact is that you do not let us off the hook because we're human. We thank you for Jesus Christ who died for us to give us the strength, in fact, the courage to live rightly. Father, if there's anyone here who needs to take that first step, the step of salvation, to trust you as their Savior, we pray even now that you'd give them the courage, the insights into their own situation to step forward and say, I need Jesus in my life. Many of us need help with the living out of the Christian faith. And so we ask that you would just take us as we are, make us what you want us to be, Reveal to us those places in our lives that are not pleasing to you. And give us the courage to get it right. And we pray these things in Jesus' name.